Lord, it's noon time. It's a good time to listen to your word. Pray that God mentally will be awake, spiritually you'll be open to listen to you. Father, you have a word for us. And I pray that God, our hearts will also be challenged to do what you call us to do. And I pray also your anointing upon our elder Shing here, Father, as you prepare this word here. And it's a difficult passage, but it's an important passage. Fill him with your spirit. Fill him with your wisdom. Let him empower his voice, empower his heart as you communicate with your words, that you communicate with the power of the Spirit. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good afternoon. <clears throat> it's just afternoon now. Um, as Chiming says, uh, we, we begin... Uh, fresh, as it were, uh, the rest of the series, or the rest of the chapters in First Corinthians. And today, we want to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, not an easy passage to understand, but we just focus on the first part, <clears throat> verses 2 to 16. So for context, we are in that part of the letter of Paul, where Paul now responds to a letter that the Corinthians themselves wrote to Paul. We don't have that letter. We are not privy to the letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. We just have Paul's response uh, to, to them. And this passage deals with having some trouble. Uh, okay. This passage deals with head coverings. Wow, why, why are we talking about head coverings? Um, it was likely that the Corinthians had written to Paul and told them that, you know, we are following the traditions that you have set in the church. Paul founded the church, and that was about uh, four to five years back. Except that some of the women in the church now were ministering in public. That is, they were praying and they were prophesying without following the usual custom of covering their heads. And this has led to contentiousness and divisions uh, within the church. Uh, this is the younger generation. So maybe I, I'll let you know that, you know, our church used to have women wearing the head coverings uh, as well as part of the brethren tradition. But today I don't see any women wearing head coverings. Um, this was, so I don't think this is an issue for us but uh, it can be an issue, and it was an issue for Paul uh, during uh, that time. So Paul responded to this problem within the church, and he did two things. Firstly, he gave reasons why women should wear head coverings. All right? Don't panic. Uh, <laughs> the women here, don't worry, you don't have to wear head coverings. I'll tell you why. But he gave reasons why the women should wear head coverings. But more importantly for us, he gave, he addressed the underlying attitude that was in the church, especially among the women. This attitude of being independent and attitude of a little bit of arrogance. Uh, and we will look at this together. Okay? So let's read the passage together. Can we? 
Can you see? You can turn to your Bibles. Let's, let's read it together, okay? Starting from verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything, for holding the traditions just as I passed on, on to you. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if it is a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a, man, a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. As Ming says, not an easy passage to go through, right? <clears throat> so the bottom line is, should women in PPH wear head coverings when they minister? No. <laughs> That's a very strong answer there. <laughs> no, we don't insist on women wearing head coverings. Why? Because we interpret 1 Corinthians 11, this passage, in its cultural context. Bear in mind that epistles are not rule books. You don't take epistles, one line written there, take it out and say this is the rule. They are letters written and addressed to a specific people in a specific culture at a specific point in history. So to truly understand what Paul means, we've got to get back to the culture, we've got to get back to the issues, and then we derive principles for our application today. If we don't do that, what's going to happen? Then we will run the risk that others will perceive Christians as oddities that are stuck in a very ancient way of life, having a form of religion, but no longer the power nor the answers for today's problems. And that would be disastrous for the Christian faith because it is God's intention that every generation of His people be the salt and light for that generation to transform society for Him. So the answer, the simple answer for why we don't retain the wearing of head coverings is because times have changed. 
because we do not share the same cultural context during Paul's days. Paul was insisting on women wearing head coverings at that time because it was the culturally appropriate thing at that point in time. And we see that in two verses. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? It was not proper at that time. But today, if you, you have somebody, well, today we have cat going up and uh, uh, leading worship. Is it improper in our consideration? It's not, right? So it was improper at that point in time. So the implication was somehow it was culturally inappropriate at that point in time. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice nor do the churches of God. This was the culturally accepted practice of the churches at that point in time. And the women wanted to break with it. So we asked ourselves, what is, why was it culturally inappropriate for the women not to cover their heads at that point in time? Well, first of all, it was a custom of women at that point in time, in that culture, to bun up their hair, their long hair, and then with pins, and then to cover their head. Letting their hair loose or letting it down was considered culturally inappropriate, if not indecent, especially during public worship. But I think more importantly, letting the hair down during public worship was reminiscent of aesthetic rituals practiced in pagan worship at that time. Corinth was a major center for the worship of Aphrodite, whose priestesses would pray themselves into a frenzy, letting their hair loose, you know, dancing themselves into a frenzy, culminating in sex that was part of worship. So for those in the congregation who had participated in those rituals previously, or others looking outside and seeing women praying in public without their head covered, would evoke images of this immorality that is associated with cultic worship in that, in that at the point in time. So Paul did not want the testimony of the church or the gospel to be tainted by this association with sexually charged, aesthetic worship of his days. But more importantly, Paul wanted to address the attitude of the women behind this problem. Ultimately, it was not an issue of attire per se, but attitude. So what was this attitude that Paul was trying to address? It was an attitude, you see that little <laughs> bird there flying off from the flock. It's an independent spirit. It's a bit of a spirit of arrogance in the context of this passage among the women. But actually, this independent spirit was also present and prevalent in the church, in the Corinth, in Corinth, in the Corinthian church at that point in time. If you look at the entire book of Corinth, you will see all these problems happening. It was a reflection of this independent, arrogant spirit. They were a very gifted church spiritually, but there was this independent and arrogant spirit, resulting in a lot of divisions within the church. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 
all the way to third, chapter 10, verse 23. This section is flanked by the Corinthians telling Paul, I have a right to do anything. They had misinterpreted Christian freedom to mean that they can do anything they want, which was causing divisions within the church. So Paul had to give them three principles for how they should live together as a body. Number one, do only what is beneficial. Number two, do only whatever strengthens your own self-discipline. Number three, do only what is constructive that builds up the whole body. Those were his three principles, guiding principles. And then in the section immediate following 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this first part, in the second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul dealt with the manner in which they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And there, again, the rich were now behaving in a way that showed their independent spirit. They were neglecting the poor. They were not, in Paul's words, not discerning the body. They just, the moment they gathered, they started the worship service, they had their own meals, they brought their own food, and when the poor came later, they were not sharing with them, and they were just neglecting them. It is also not difficult to understand why this independent spirit developed among the women in that, at that time. Given the context of how the women were marginalized in Jewish as well as in the Greco-Roman cultures, the gospel actually had liberated them. The Christian faith liberated the women from the shackles of male chauvinistic restrictions. Women were now given the opportunity to participate in worship. Previously, no, they were not allowed to participate in public. They were not even gathered with the men. They were gathered separately. They were gifted now with, by the Holy Spirit to minister, just like the men. And so it is likely that some of the women, the more outspoken, became over-enthusiastic in casting off their cultural restraints, and then they crossed the line. And then they develop this independent spirit. You know, every time, you know, that we, we receive God's gift and we practice God's spiritual gift in some way, there's always a danger we need to watch out for. And that is arrogance. That is independent spirit. They said, I am now better than others. Right? That, that is something like that, what happened probably among the women. Or perhaps they had read Galatians. Galatians was written earlier than Paul, and probably the letter was circulating amongst the churches. Galatians chapter 3, 26, 28 says, So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. So there's no distinction between male and female, they may be thinking. So why should the females be required to wear a head covering when the male doesn't need to wear? No, you know, there's equality here. So they misinterpreted Paul's teaching on the equality of status with the uniformity of function. So how did Paul deal, deal with this attitude of independent spirit? 
That's where Paul goes into this rather complicated argument that you have from verse 2 to verse 11. And basically, just to summarize it, uh, he went back to creation to make the main point that God created men and women as distinct genders with different functions to be interdependent on each other. Man dependent on woman, woman dependent on man. The summary of his argument, which can be a little bit difficult to understand, actually turns on the understanding of the word head, which in the Greek is kephale. So what is the meaning of head, kephale? So you see in verse 4, for example, that every man who prays with his head covered. I mean, that is the body part of the head, right? Same thing, verse 5. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. Paul is referring to the body part. But in verse 3, Paul says this, the head of the woman is man. Now, what does Paul mean? Obviously, Paul is using head there metaphorically, right? So what does the metaphorical meaning of head or kephale mean? Because one possible meaning is that it means rule over, authority over, in a sense of status, boss. The man is the boss, the woman is the subordinate. So if we interpret it that way, that the head means authority over, then what Paul is telling the Corinthians, or to the women in particular, is that you are not independent of men because you were made to be ruled over by him. He's your boss. I see some men smiling there. <laughs> Just a word to the men before you get any ideas is there's a saying, saying that goes something like this. Man may be the head of woman, but who's the neck? <laughs> we are. <laughs> that turns the head. The woman is the neck that turns the head. All right? So you know where the authority or where the power lies. But it is not this interpretation, all right? I think we can safely rule out a hierarchical interpretation that man is above in status or has this authority to rule over the woman, okay? I give you three reasons why this is so. First of all, the passage parallels man as woman's head with God as Christ's head. There is no hierarchy within the Godhead. Okay? God the Father is not superior to God the Son in the sense that He rules over the Son. The Son willingly submits Himself to the Father because there is a difference of function within the Godhead. Second reason, the Corinthians themselves would not have understood this word, kephale, or head, to mean being ruled over. And here I quote hard sayings of the Bible by various people who are well-noted uh, evangelical scholars, all right? So I'm not teaching you something out of the evangelical, uh, including people like F.F. F. Bruce. I mean, some of you may have known F.F. F. Bruce, right? The most exhaustive in Greek-English 
lexicon. Lexicon is the meaning of words, different words, covering the Greek literature. So study of what the meaning of Greek words is from about 900 BC all the way to 600 AD, among numerous metaphorical meanings for kephale, this word, does not give a single definition to indicate that in the ordinary Greek usage, this included the meaning of superior rank, supreme over, or leader, or have authority over. No such meaning. So the Corinthians themselves would not have understood this word to mean man has authority to rule over women. And the third reason I give you is that the translators of the Old Testament Hebrew, what we call the Septuagint, we call it the Septuagint because 70 translators were thought to be involved in the translation of this Old Testament Hebrew, uh, uh, the, the Old Testament into Hebrew. When they came across the Old Testament word for head, ros, in, in Hebrew, if that word meant authority or rule over, they would not use kephale. They would use another word, which is archon. That means authority, but not kephale. So I think these are pretty good and strong reasons for us that kephale does not refer to authority over or hierarchy. Gordon Fee has a very nice summary of what this word means in his commentary in 1 Corinthians. Gordon Fee is the author of How to Read the Bible for All His Worth. And I'm sure some of you may have used that book. It is quite a classical text on biblical hermeneutics. And he says this, Paul's understanding of the metaphor, therefore, and almost certainly one the Corinthians would have grasped, is that head as source, or especially source of life or origin. And this makes sense because the whole context of that passage Paul clearly had in mind the creation story. What Paul is saying, therefore, is that woman's source was man. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out from man. In the sense that God created woman out from man, not from the ground. Bear in mind that woman was also created in God's image. So the source may be man, but she was also created in God's image. The idea of source is also consistent with Christ, with the head of Christ being God. Because in Christ's incarnation as man, Christ came from God. We read in John chapter 1, 14, the Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. That's the origin of Christ, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because woman came from man, Paul says that woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, because she was derived from him. This is the biblical concept. Whatever emerges from the other is meant to manifest and to reflect the glory of its origin and its maker. That's why Christ as man 
is in his incarnation as man, reflects the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God gave us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. Same for creation. We know this. Heavens declare the glory of God. Why do the heavens declare the glory of God? Because its source is God. God created the heavens and the earth to reflect His glory. So what Paul is saying, therefore, is that man was created first. He reflects only the glory of God. It's derived from him. But woman is slightly different. Woman was created by God, so she reflects the glory of God, but she was taken from man, so she also has another role, which is to reflect the glory of man. So what Paul, therefore, is telling the woman is cover your heads as a symbolic gesture to cover your other role as reflecting man's glory. So that when you come together to worship as man and as woman, both of you do it in such a way that you only reflect the glory of God. <clears throat> Not man. They are, men and women are exercising God-given spiritual gifts in the context of worship to glorify God, not men. So that was his argument. But I think more importantly, Paul was addressing this independent attitude that was in the women. So if we take the metaphorical meaning, therefore, of head to mean source or origin, then what Paul is telling the woman is, don't have this attitude that you are independent of man because you were derived from him to complement him, to work with him in a synergistic way. God created man and woman to be interdependent. Therefore, honour that, celebrate that difference and together you will worship God in a more effective way. So men and women were meant to partner each other in a complementary, synergistic way so that when they come together, right, one plus one is not equals to two. It is equals to three. It is synergistic. And this is true in all of life, right? It applies not only in worship, it applies to all of life and in ministry. When men and women exercise their spiritual gifts in harmonious interdependence, the sum is better than its parts, and God is more glorified. When we minister harmoniously together, man and woman, we are more effective as a church. So what does that mean, therefore? Let me draw three applications for us today. The first thing is, when we come together in worship, we glorify God alone. Just as the women who cover their heads and cover man's glory, so we cover everything that draws glory to ourselves. The way we dress, the way we speak, what we share, how we share, our attitudes towards one another, 
how we behave, everything that we do must be done in such a way that it edifies the body and it glorifies God. That's the first principle. And this doesn't just apply to women. This applies to men as well. And I think it, it's good for all of us who are involved in some way in, public, in leading public worship, whether it be in prayer, in speaking, in sermon, in worship, we examine ourselves. We come before God and we want to make sure that everything we do, how we do it, everything we say, gives God glory and God alone. Nothing. We don't draw attention to ourselves. <clears throat> Second application is that we minister according to our spiritual giftings, not according to gender. We practice the priesthood of all believers, male and female. Both are equally gifted. All passages that speak about spiritual gifts don't mention gender. There is no such thing as men are given certain gifts and women given other gifts. You see, the, the early church realized this and the early church broke traditional male and female distinctions with regard to ministry. They were the ones, Paul was the one that allowed women to minister in public, to pray and to prophesy in public according to their spiritual gifting. And that's what he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that follows. You must first get rid of this independent attitude first, and then we can begin to talk about how we can cooperately, together, use spiritual gifts for mutual edification and God's glory. So no mention about the distribution of spiritual gifts according to gender. Rather, how are spiritual gifts distributed? as the Spirit wills, not according to gender. The Pentecost experience of the church in Acts 2, that Chiming referred to last week as well, was interpreted by Peter to be a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, where God says, in the, in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all peoples. Now, this is not just all nations. The next line says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And prophecy, we have heard last week, is one of the key gifts for the church, for the edification of the church. And this is given to both men and women, not just to the men. Men and women will receive the same gift, leadership, for example, but they will express it differently, complementarily, synergistically, so that together, the church, the body, becomes more effective. If we learn how to utilize and exercise these gifts in a mutually submissive way. And I'll deal with that later. And that's why we have a great pastoral team. 50% of our pastoral team are women. Great. Amen, yes. <laughs> but we have a problem. Uh-oh. We have a problem in our diaconate. <laughs> Two out of 17 are women. And worse, elders, zero out of five are women. We have some ways to go. Anyway, we can have a separate discussion. Should women, can women be elders? You know my view, right? 
the young people here. No such thing, right? Gender, leadership, gifting in Romans chapter 12, verse 8 has no gender, right? Okay, let me go to the third one, which, I, which is what I want to focus and concentrate on, which is regard against an independent, contentious spirit. Not only are men and women interdependent as Christians, we as a body, as members, are interdependent on each other. There is no such thing as an independent Christian. It is an oxymoron. In other words, it is a contradiction of terms. As Christians, we become a part of the life-giving body of Christ. The New Testament language for this is, we are in Christ. Through the Holy Spirit who unites us together as a body. What does that mean for us as parts of this body? Just like a part of your physical body, it draws life from the whole body. You cut off your hand, put it there, and see whether it survives. It does not survive. You cannot have life apart from your connection to the body. And that's why God gave us, each one of us, a spiritual gift. Why? Not so much for our own personal enjoyment, but so that we can be useful to the body as we each express and exercise that gift together in the body. Romans tells us that we are members one of another. We recognize, you know what it means when I say we are members of the body of Christ. We are all part of this body. But do you know that you are also a member one of another? Which means that I am a part of you and you are a part of me. That's what Romans chapter 12, verse 5 means. We are members one of another. We are that dependent on each other. So let me illustrate what that can mean. We can be one another's ear. I can be your ear. You can be my ear to listen to you. Grace and I had, re had dinner recently with a missionary. We'll just call her Mary. That's not her real name. She clearly had a passion for this country and she was happily serving there as a missionary for seven years. Then she fell sick and she had to leave that country for treatment back home. And after she recovered, she couldn't get back into that country because she couldn't get the visa anymore. The door was closed. And so she was led to another place to serve. But Mary just couldn't accept it. It was just too abrupt for her. And she was quite depressed about it. So she went for counselling with an elderly lady, a retired missionary who, served, who had served in the field for many years. The elderly missionary just listened, just sat there and listened. And she became Mary's ear. And Mary told us, she just cried and cried and spoke and just talked and shared. And the elderly missionary just listened. She was functioning as Mary's ear. After that, Mary told us, suddenly, miraculously almost, the whole burden of disappointment just left her. And she felt peace for the first time. And now she's enjoying her work in this new place. 
See how God uses members to be each other's parts, can be the ear, we can be each other's knees. We pray for one another. Pastor shared with some of the leaders of his recent experience at the receiving end of pastoral support, how we can support someone as they wait, as they pray for God's healing that sometimes seem a bit long in coming. And the natural reaction for a lot of us, because we want to be helpful, right, is we offer some practical help, some remedies that we have read about or we have tried and perhaps worked for us. But his advice is this, and I quote, <clears throat> when you ask a sick person, how are you? Are you better? And when the response is, I'm still sick or have become worse, I know it's hard to respond. I will pray for you is always good, provided you do pray. Huh? Another simple response is, I think, can be a simple, I'm sorry to hear that. That's coming from a person who is sick. How can we best support them? You see, often the sick don't require another doctor. They already have consulted doctors. They have read about their problem. And what they need is for us to walk alongside them, right? to be present with them, to be their knees, to pray for them. Because sometimes when you are in pain, when you are suffering, it is very difficult even to pray for yourself. There's this discouragement and you feel that you are a little bit distant from God. You need support. You need somebody to come alongside. Knowing that someone is walking alongside you gives you courage, strengthens you to carry on. I asked one of our CG members who have, been, who have joined the CG for just about six months how the CG has blessed her. And one of the first things that she listed was the opportunity to pray for one another, to be one another's knees. And I quote, For me, I was very touched when members cover me in prayers whenever I have to go for a medical follow-up. This eases my anxiety. She's on regular follow-up uh, for cancer. This gives me peace because every time she goes for this follow-up, she's wondering, am I going to get a clean bill of health or has the cancer recurred and so on? But she feels that sense of peace and anxiety when CG members walk and journey along with her. And then her joy when she has a good result, when there is a clean bill of health. She's, she feels joyful, she's thankful. And then she shares it with the, with the CG, and the CG all texts, oh, praise God, you know, and everybody rejoices together. You see, your joy is multiplied, and your burdens are halved when you share together with the body. That's what body life is about. So the question for us today, therefore, is, will you embrace body life? Will you choose to engage with others in a deeper way. And it is an intentional choice. It is a choice of life, and it is a choice that you want to grow. For most of us, me included, engaging with others is not natural. <laughs> You're surprised? I think for most of us, engaging with others is not like 
outflow from our personality. We are more, you know, introspective. I think the natural tendency for us is really to grow inwards, to be a little bit more self-absorbed. And I notice this in myself as I grow older. So better be careful, better start early. <laughs> you want to start late, more difficult. Because you become more self-absorbed as you become older. I also understand that we're all busy. Families, jobs, caring for young children, caring for elderly parents. Wow, another activity to engage the body. Ah, oh, my schedule is already full. And probably behind our thoughts, we don't really want the messiness and the pain that comes from having to engage others, right? There will be conflicts. There will be disagreements, just like in the Corinthian church. That's what happened in the Corinthian church. Yes, every time we engage in the body, there will be conflicts. We are not perfect, right? But the truth is this. Unless we engage, we will not experience the abundant life that the Bible speaks about. Unless we engage, we will not grow as a Christian. You are part of the body. You cannot grow apart from the body. And part of that growth that we all need to grow in is to learn how to submit to one another. This was the lesson that the Corinthian church needed to learn. The conflict in the Corinthian church resulted in contentiousness and divisions. But conflicts don't need to result in divisions and contentions. It can result in maturity and it can result in growth if we learn to submit to one another. To submit to one another is to be prepared to put our desires secondary to others. Of course, it is not easy. We always tend to put our own desires and egos first. But that is the journey in life that we need to make. What motivates us to submit to one another? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Out of reverence for Christ. That word reverence there is an interesting Greek word, phobos, from, from, from what we derive phobia. It is actually fear. So what Paul is saying is that you submit to one another out of reverential fear of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just because we respect Him, therefore we submit. No. It is a reverential fear that must be in our lives for Christ so that we can submit one to another. What does it mean to have this reverential fear for Christ? It means that we are in awe, not just by His love, by His sacrifice for us, we are also awed by the fact that He is sovereign, He is Lord, He is judge, before whom we must give an account of our lives when we meet Him. And part of what we need to account for in our lives is not only what have we done for Him, but how have we grown to be like Him or not? Have we grown? Have we matured as a Christian? Are we more and more like our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we have the same attitude as our Master, who did not count equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage, you see, but willing to humble himself, become a servant, sacrifice 
Himself on the cross. So that's why Paul exhorts us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. I like this quote from William James. Whenever you are in conflict with someone, there is one factor that can make the difference between damaging your relationship and deepening it. And that is attitude. So conflicts are not bad. It's how we handle conflicts that will result in whether we split, we are contentious, we divide, or whether we grow. We grow deeper in our relationship with one another. We grow deeper as a body of Christ. The attitude within the Corinthian church, the women in particular in this case, but more generally the church, was the problem. They were not willing to submit to one another. This independent spirit and arrogance caused divisions and contention. So what is that attitude that we must have so that conflicts will not result in contentiousness and divisions, but rather result in growth and maturity? That attitude is this, that we are willing to count others more significant than ourselves. What does it mean to count others more significant than yourself? Well, one practical way is to think of others more than you think about yourself. You have heard the saying by C.S. Lewis on his definition of what humility is. Humility is not to think less of yourself. That means you, think, you don't think of yourself lesser than other people. You're not worse than other people. It's just that you think of yourself less. In other words, don't be so self-absorbed with yourself. Think of others. Live life with an outward orientation, not an inward one. The outward orientation means my concern, my life is oriented in such a way as how can I be of serving service to others? How can I serve others rather than to be served by others? This is the abundant life the Bible speaks about, and it is countercultural. It is not how I can be served, but how I can be serving others and blessing others. And in the process of doing that, you are blessed. That is the countercultural life that the Bible speaks about. Of course, it is not easy. It is not easy to sacrifice ourselves, to crucify our ego and our pride. But that is why we need to be a part of the body because this is where we practice it. This is where we exercise. As we come, as we engage together, there will be conflicts and there will be opportunities to count others more significant than yourselves. There will be opportunities to really humble yourself, to grow and to mature. Growing in maturity and humility cannot happen in the study, cannot happen solitary. You've got to engage in relationships with others. If you want to grow, you've got to engage. You cannot say, I want to grow, but in my own way, without engaging others. I don't want the pain. Cannot happen. This is like saying, I want to be healthy, but I don't want to exercise. It's too painful for me to exercise. No such thing. If you want to grow, 
you want to be healthy, you've got to exercise, you've got to engage. Alright, so make a choice today. Choose life. Choose growth. Say, I want to experience the abundant life that the Bible speaks about. I want to grow as a Christian so that I can be like my master, so that I can be like my Lord Jesus Christ because I'm in awe of Him. I want to be like Him. Then engage the body. And there are many opportunities, right, and ways to engage. And a very simple and wonderful way to do that is to join a CG. I asked one of my CG members how the CG has been a blessing to her. And within a day, she wrote me two full pages of how the CG has been a blessing to her. And she even put up a video of the CG life. Of course, I, not, I will not be able to share it to you, with you, but the CG has blessed her not only spiritually, through the Word, through prayer, but helped her develop more healthy habits. She was a couch potato watching mind-numbing Korean dramas. <laughs> so, if some of you have that problem, join a CG, you see. To now, an active and avid mountain climber. Right? In just a few months. And she just came, she just scaled Mount Kinabalu. And now she's enjoying better health and a larger vision of God's sovereignty in the beauty uh, of nature that she sees around her. So she made this video. So I thought I would share it with you. So I have to share it with you. <laughs> she, she made this video of what the CG looks like from her perspective, not only studying the Word, praying together, but we eat together, we play together, we have fun together, we serve together, and in that way, we grow and we mature together. And this is just one CG. This is, I'm sure, multiplied in all the different CGs that we have in the church. But only 50 to 60%, or maybe 50% of our church members are in CG. What's happening to the other half of the body? We need the other half of the body to also participate in this kind of body life so that we will really grow and we will really mature. Right? Because this is where really the rubber meets the road. This is where we rub one another. This is where we feel the pain of relationships because we engage with one another deeply. But this is where you will grow the most. And this is where you will experience the abundant life. So let me share this with you. With you. Okay, can I invite uh, Alan? Is Alan still here? Uh, to uh, to play 
uh, on the instrumental as we make our response to God. So really, if you, if you, if you have not, you're not part of a CG, really I, I strongly encourage you, join a CG. There's so many CGs in church and they're all, I'm sure, very welcoming of anyone who wants to join. Then you will really experience the joy, the fellowship, the friendship. And yes, there's some pain, but as I told you, it's necessary pain for our own personal growth and for us to really know how to function more effectively together and in, relate to one another in a deeper way. So let's, let's make a response to God today. Let's quieten our hearts this morning. And as Chiming invited us last week, I think let's just wait upon God and let's make room for Him now. I think we live such busy lives that this is the time that we can respond to Him here and now. Reflect back on, on what you have heard and just one thing that perhaps God may be speaking to you about. What is that response that I need to make to you, Lord? And then just respond to Him where you are. Take this time and respond to Him. behind uh, during worship God impressed on me this, this verse or this, this passage from the high priestly prayer of, uh, of Jesus you know, as Jesus prayed for his disciples and I'm sure you're familiar with this but let me read this verses to you and I think this is really God's heart Jesus' heart uh, for us Chapter 17, John, and verse 6, let me read that to you. I have, this is just Jesus' prayer. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. And then Jesus went on, uh, goes on to pray for them. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those you have given me, for they are yours. And how is Jesus praying for us? And this is, this is the heart of Jesus for us. That He will protect us, but also later on, he says, I've given them your word and, your, and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. And then he goes on to say, this is 
this prayer for us. I pray not for them alone, but also for all who will believe. That's for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, we really need to pray for protection. And part of the protection is the schisms and the divisions within the body. And this is God's prayer for us, that we will be one as Christ is one with the Father. So as we come before God, if there's anything in us, a conflict today, someone, an attitude towards a brother or a sister that God is laying on our hearts, let's respond to Him. Tell Him, Lord, I want to be reconciled. I want to forgive. I want to be reunited because we are members of one another. Now let's just take some time to practice the body life that Chiming introduced last week again to us. Let's pray for one another. This is body life. It's such a privilege to pray for one another. Just pray a prayer of blessing. Just quickly where you are as we close this, just pair up where you are. Pray a prayer of blessing for your brother or your sister or your spouse. Don't need to pray so long. Just, and then let the other person pray for you. And as he encouraged us last week, sense what God is speaking to us about. And pray for one another and experience that joy of body life together. person can now pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for putting us, each one of us, as members of your body. Thank you that in you, by the Holy Spirit, we are united as one. Thank you that you have given us each other. You have gifted us with gifts to be a blessing one to the other so that we are dependent on one another. And so, Father, I pray for this unity of spirit and this body life to be real, to be a joy, to be a support, to be a nourishment, to be life for us here in this church. And as you pray, Lord, we pray that we too will be one. And protect us, O Lord, the evil one, 
seeks to destroy, to divide. We pray, God, that you protect us, that you will give us the spirit of mutual submission, that we may learn what it means to submit one to another. And now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice! Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Thank you, Father, for this promise that as we live in unity, you will be present with us in a special way to give us life, to give us joy, to give us growth, and to give us maturity. Thank you, Lord. We ask now that you part us with your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. For those of you who want to continue to pray, please feel free to come forward and we can...